you want to take your Bibles and let's read Esther chapter 5, and we'll read Esther chapter um, 6 as well. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne, in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter, and the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has, Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So the banquet of wine, the king said, So at the, at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides... Queen Esther has invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she had prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her, along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. That night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on his head, 
Then let his robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback throughout the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horses you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback throughout the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to him, to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gates. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's units came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. Father, we do thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your preservation and protection of Esther and of Mordecai. We thank you that it's a reminder to the Jewish nation that you care for them, that you are their God, that you will protect them. We thank you that it's not simply a reminder to the Jewish nation of your character, of your goodness, and of your care, but it is a reminder today to us that your character has not changed, that you are still sovereign, that you still reverse fortunes, that you protect and that you guide your servants. We pray that we would be faithful to you as we contemplate about who you are, that you are faithful that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And as a result, you are worthy of our obedience, of our submission, and our faithfulness to you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you remember, this story has had a lot of background. Um, Haman has just convinced King Ahasuerus that there is a people group that are not worthy of life in the kingdom. And so he's gone to... King Ahasuerus, and he's convinced King Ahasuerus, hey, look, these Jews, they all need to be wiped out. You need to kill all of them. And King Ahasuerus, we have seen that he is a very fickle leader. And so almost any time somebody comes into King Ahasuerus and says, hey, look, here's this great idea, every single time King Ahasuerus, the great powerful ruler, crumples before them and succumbs to their wishes. And so... This is what has happened, and Esther hears about it, and at first she seems to not have a desire to intervene in the situation, but as Mordecai talks with her in chapter 4, she begins to come around, and she decides, yes, I'm going to engage in this plight for my nation. And so she tells Mordecai, please tell the people of Israel that I'm going to go and see the king in three days. But in the meantime, you all fast. And so they've been fasting. And what is, what is the purpose of the fasting? The fasting's purpose is that when she goes in before the king, he's not going to say, I haven't summoned you. In fact, I haven't asked to see you for the last 30 days. Why do you think that I wanted you now? Take her out and execute her immediately because he had that right. 
And so Esther fasts, and on the third day in verse 1, we're introduced to the fact that she is now fulfilling her promise to Mordecai. She puts on her royal robe, she makes herself beautiful, and she goes and she stands in this place where it's like probably the king could kind of see her, but it's not really, she's not really open, entered into his presence. And when she does, he immediately accepts her entrance into the community. And, and what you see is that she is entering after the fasting. And it's like God is answering the prayer. You still have no mention of God in the text. And we're not going to see a mention of God. And if you remember, I've, I've said before, but I think that the reason is that in the midst of your trials and in the midst of my trials, God seems distant. God seems disconnected from the trials and the difficulties of our lives. And because of that, we are tempted, we are prone as sinful human beings to fall back from obedience, to fall back from faithfulness to God. And the text is portraying a similar situation that is from the past and saying in a very, very similar way, God seemed absent from this situation. And yet he was not absent. He was present in the situation, working it about to accomplish his good purpose. And so they, they fast. Esther is granted access to the king, and she makes her request known. It's interesting. He's this, this powerful king is once again portrayed as kind of crazy, right? Verse 3, he sees her, he offers her the, the scepter, she touches it, and his immediate response is, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, up to half the kingdom. I mean, just like lavish, over-the-top nonsense, really. I mean, he, he may be using this as a um, figure of speech, maybe not literal, but the idea is just whatever you want, and that's really true to character, that's true to a form that we've seen. Every time somebody comes to the king with an idea, he's like, sure, sounds good to me, where's the wine? That's how King Ahasuerus has been portrayed chapter after chapter. And, and so she comes in and the, the request is, hey, I, I, I prepared this banquet, w would you and Mordecai, or, uh, oops, Haman and Ahasuerus come to Esther's feast. And, and so they, they come to the, the feast and um, they they bring her they bring a Haman in verse 5 and the king said bring Haman quickly and that we may do as Esther has said so the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared at the banquet of wine the king then asks her again hey uh, what do you want you know I mean you don't risk your life after I haven't wanted to see you for 30 days to ask me to come have a meal what, what do you really want she once again says, hey, why don't you guys come back again tomorrow and let's have another meal. And, and so you already are beginning to see God's preservation, God's care, God's sovereignty over the situation. I mean, here is a king who has not wanted to see his queen for the last 30 days. We learned that in chapter 4. Because when Mordecai comes to Esther and says, hey, why don't you just go talk to the king and see if we can you know, work out this situation so we don't all die. She's like, 
I haven't seen the guy for 30 days. And I don't know if I really want to risk my neck to go talk to him. But God is preserving, God is answering prayer. And the text moves on. Haman has been plotting an evil plan for some time. And God is going to, all of a sudden, very quickly begin to unravel Haman's evil plan. But this is a, a brand new evil plan. Haman's leaving, and as he leaves the banquet, he's in a position of great joy. He is just delighted with the events of the day. And as he walks out of the courtyard of the palace, there sits Haman. And Haman fails to stand up or to tremble when he sees him. And all of a sudden, he is filled with indignation. He's filled with rage. And he chooses to, to pursue peace for the moment. I mean, it's, it's really sad. Like, instead of grabbing the guy by the neck and just wringing it right then, the text is like, he chose the calm way. And so he does that, and he gets home, and he's telling his family about all the great things that have happened to him. And as he tells his family about all the great things, he gets to the end of describing his day, and it's like, my entire life was ruined by this one single event, because I was reminded of all the other times this has happened. So he gets home, and as he's talking to his wife and his friends, this is what he says. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him over the other officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she had prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited to her along with the king. But all this avails me nothing as long as Mordecai the Jew sits at the king's gate. And so his whole day is completely ruined by this. And his wife and his friends are like, well, there's a solution. And the solution is proposed in verse 14. His wife and Zeresh, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. That's probably about 75 feet high in the air. So they, they can properly humiliate this guy as he dies. Let it be built. In the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, and then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And all of a sudden, the joy that we saw in verse 9 is back. Haman is, is on cloud 9. He spends the rest of the night constructing a 75-foot construction project because the nemesis of his life is going to be killed on it tomorrow. Because he's on cloud nine, he's in the favor of the king and the queen in his eyes. The, the queen likes him enough that he alone got invited, guys. It's not like he's, you know, even fighting the two of them. He's got them both on his side, and he's like positive this is going to happen, and his life is going to be just grand. And yet, God hinders the sleep of Ahasuerus. I mean, it just blows your mind. 
every single event that should have happened for King Ahasuerus to have a perfectly good night's sleep has happened. The guy got drunk, we know that. He was at a big party with his wife. Like, this is like a recipe, it should be a recipe for sleep. And yet, something happens so that King Ahasuerus, who should be sleeping, is unable to sleep this evening. And as he tosses and turns on his bed, he decides he's going to get up. And because he didn't have an iPhone that he could pull out and play games on, he chooses to instead have the historical records of his times read to him by one of his best helpers. And so the helper comes, and he's reading him stories, and he gets the story of Mordecai. This is a story that we've heard about before, and Esther and Mordecai both were involved in reporting that there was an assassination plot on Ahasuerus' life. And he goes, well, what was, what was done for Mordecai? And the helper tells him, you know, nothing's, nothing's been done for Mordecai. He hasn't been honored in any way, and this was, this was a time when... You, you did things to honor people so that you would be able to continue keeping them on your side. And so this is a problem that must be rectified immediately because if we don't honor Mordecai, next time something like this happens, he may turn on us and he may be the one assassinating me. So this is a crisis for King Ahasuerus. And he's like, well, this is, this is truly a crisis. And he's like, well, who's, who's available to talk to about this so that I could find a wise option and, and a good way to seek to honor this man. And Haman has called him to give advice. He asks, who's in the court? It's early, early in the morning. Haman's there. Why is Haman there? He has plans for Mordecai to be hung on his 75-foot gallow that he spent the whole night constructing. So Haman comes into the king, and the king says, somebody that I would like to honor above other people, what would you suggest? Verse 3, then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed, or sorry, um, verse, uh, verse 6, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, I am on cloud nine, my life is going just like it should be. The king loves me. I've been promoted. Nothing that Mordecai has done has been recorded that would make him eligible for promotion. That doesn't mean he hasn't done anything. But there's things that Mordecai did that have been overlooked. The king is really incompetent, it appears. And Esther is singling him out to be invited to come and enjoy a feast with the queen and the king alone. I mean, who would you think the king wanted to honor? Of course it's me. Well, I mean, if, if you can ask me how you'd like me to be honored, I will tell you, this is what you should do for me. Just, just find one of the, you know, the old, you know, old robes. Not a wrinkled one, but one of the ones that's in the back of the closet the king hasn't worn for a while. But everybody identifies very easily with the king. And one of the horses that the king rides and one of the the beautiful little crown things that goes on the horse's head, and have the person you want to be honored put on that robe, sit on that horse with a little crest on the head, and have one of your best, noblest princes in the whole capital come and lead this person through the, 
the city square, proclaiming, This is what is done for the man whom the Lord, or whom the king delights to honor. And the king hears it, and what have what we learned about King Ahasuerus? I mean, any idea that's proposed, he's like, I'm on it. I'm all for it. Because the guy can't actually think for himself or something. I don't know. There's a serious problem with his ability to lead. I think it's part of the overarching plots of the book to demonstrate that the people who appear to be in control, who appear to be in power, really aren't. Because King Yahashuerus hardly makes a single decision on his own that's of any substantive worth that's not like chewed up and processed for him and then given to him and he's like, this is good stuff. It's just a little minor plot that goes on underneath the scenes that I think are pointing to the fact that God is ultimately the one who is sovereign. He is controlling the events and he is orchestrating them as he desires. And so Haman is called in. He provides all this advice and Ahasuerus accepts Haman's advice and he honors Mordecai. And in verse 10, here is the pinnacle moment of irony in this text. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew who sits within the gates, king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. And at the same time he thought that Mordecai was going to be writhing in pain, hanging on his gallows that he had made, he is dressing this guy up in king's clothes and honoring him in the way that he would like to be honored. And so he does just what he's told. Verse 11 describes that and afterward, there's this great contrast. Because you would think that the text would talk about how happy Mordecai is. You would think that you'd have a note similar to the note of chapter 5, verse 9. So Mordecai went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But it's almost like Mordecai is unfazed by all this. The text simply says, afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. But in great contrast, we see the full emotional um, pendulum with Mordecai once again. He goes from pure excitement, ecstasy, to life is in ruin, to ecstasy, to life is in ruin. Verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the house, to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. If you remember, what happens? The, the, the servants in the kingdom notice that Mordecai is not doing this and that it displeases Haman. And they come and they tell Haman information about this whole thing. And so everybody knows Haman's got it out for Mordecai. The king doesn't because the king is a complete incompetent. Okay, But everybody else knows and here is nemesis number one being led around by the guy that's trying to plot his death, proclaiming this is what is done for the man whom the king delights to honor. And so when he's done doing that, he's just mortified. He goes home, he's crying, he's got his face covered, 
much like a disgraced um, you know, movie star when they are going to court, they have their like coats over their head. That's the idea. Like nobody see me, no flash photography, please. I'm just gonna get back to my house and cry the rest of the night. That is the picture you see here. He gets home, he calls his family, his friends, and he begins to recount the day's events to them. When Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, very encouraging message here, if Mordecai, whom, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Pretty much, that's your death sentence, bud. Good luck. And, and poor Haman, it's like he's, he's forgotten. Um, he's forgotten that he has an appointment. And, and God preserves his servant, Mordecai, because the plan to kill him is gone. And Zeresh and his wife, his wise men, assert that Haman will ultimately lose to Mordecai. And Haman's grief seems to cause him to forget the banquet. The very cause for great joy and rejoicing. It's almost like it's being pictured in verse 14. Like the king, Ahasuerus, and Esther are seated there at the banquet. Like, where's, where's Haman? And they call a couple of units and they're like, go get the guy. He's got to be at his house. And they come in and they rush him off to the banquet. Like, you've got a lunch appointment, bud. Keep moving. What's all this saying, though? Like, what, what, is, what is being taught in the text? I think that there are some theological principles that are found within the text that then call upon you and I to live differently, to apply those truths to our life and how we live before the Lord. I think, first of all, God answers our prayers. You see that in the text. I think that that is... Um, that is present within the text. God is preserving his own. They're instructed to fast. They fast, and God is seeing to it that what they have requested is answered. In addition, I think you see that God orchestrates the events of our lives to bring himself glory. The, the events have been kind of crazy. How we start or ended chapter 4 and began chapter 5 looks really, really bleak. It's really scary. But the irony and the ups and downs of chapter 5 and chapter 6 have completely reversed fortunes. Like, you don't expect what happens by the end of chapter 6 at the beginning of chapter 5. And so God is orchestrating all this. Why? Not simply to preserve the Jews. Okay? It's not just simply so that the Jews continue to live another day. It's so that the Jews live another day, and as a result, God's promises to them are seen to be true. That God demonstrates himself to be faithful, and as God demonstrates that his promises are true, they are trustworthy and that they can be relied upon but the response of the nations is that they would glorify God for his continued faithfulness to his rebellious people who have been hauled off from their land 
to a foreign kingdom. And so these events are orchestrated for the glory of God. And God may choose to preserve his service. It doesn't always happen. There are numerous records of God's servants who are not preserved, who are not prevented um, from facing annihilation in one way or another. But sometimes God chooses to preserve his servants. And God is in control of all of life's events. And so as we, as we think about who our God is and how we are to respond to him, how do we then, what do we do as a result? Because all these truths about who God is and who we are in relationship to him mean that you and I have to live different as a result. We can't say that we believe that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that he has all of life orchestrated with a perfect plan to accomplish the greatest amount of glory that can be brought to God and say, I'm going to go do life how I want to do life. That is inconsistent with the message of the book. And so I think one of the things that you and I must do is if we believe that God is sovereign, that he has a plan, then where do you go for your plan for life? Friends provide advice. Sometimes friends provide good advice. Sometimes your spouse provides good advice. Sometimes your employer provides good advice. Sometimes your grandparents provide good advice. Sometimes your parents provide good advice. Sometimes your pastor provides good advice. But each one of those sources of advice, of guidance, will at times fail. But because God is sovereign and because God is faithful and he has instructed us through his word on how we are to live life in such a way that we bring God the most glory in our life possible, you and I ought to direct our attention, our search for guidance and instruction for the difficult situations of life to the word of God. In addition, I think that you and I need to continue to develop our ability to trust God in the midst of the trials that we face. Esther and Mordecai are going through some crazy difficult trials in chapter 4, chapter 5. Their lives are being threatened. You and I have faced multiple threats, but the number of us who have had our lives threatened to the extent that Esther and Mordecai and their fellow Jews have in Esther chapter 4 and 5, it's like probably maybe one or two of us. Or maybe none. And yet, through this trial, they learn to trust God better. And scripture tells us over and over again that the purpose of trials is not to you know, make us a hypocrite who runs to God because there's a trial, because there's a hardship, because there's something bad, and we look at them and we go, that wasn't real because they ran to God. No, Scripture tells us over and over again that the purpose of trials is so that you and I would mature in our faith. Trials are a tool God uses to make us more like God. That is not hypocrisy. That is allowing God's 
God's discipline, God's instruction to have its perfect work in you. Trusting God more as a result of the trial is not hypocrisy. Rather, it's a demonstration of true abiding faith. And then finally, I believe that you and I, as we meditate upon the fact that God sovereignly controls all these events and and the people who seem so powerful and seem so scary really aren't. Why? Because God is so much more powerful. He orchestrates all these events for his purposes. And the king who should have been able to control everything and work about his plan just as it should have happened. He can't even string together like a coherent idea and get it to go past. Because every time there's a decision to be made, he takes somebody else's decision. And, and so as we meditate upon God's power, God's control, and his plan in the events of our lives, it should result in you and I worshiping and thanking God. There is a plan and that he is in control and that you and I don't have to worry why? Because he is in control and he is orchestrating your life, my life, your trials and my trials to bring him honor and glory. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your sovereign control over the events of Esther's life, over the events of Mordecai's life. We thank you that you demonstrate yourself faithful in the text of your word. And that through its encouragement and its instruction, we are able to uh, know you, know your heart better, know your character better, and be strengthened to face the trials and the difficulties that we will inevitably face in our lives. We pray that we would be honoring, that we would be glorifying to you this coming week. In your name we pray. Amen.